I'm Philip Rucker. I'm the White House Bureau Chief at The Washington Post. Every day I'm watching what President Trump does. I'm asking questions of his advisors. I'm trying to get to the bottom of why he's doing what he's doing and what the consequences are for our country. And our goal every day is to really unearth new facts, to bring light to things that are hidden in our government. When I publish a big scoop, we get immediate feedback, positive, negative. But the people who are supportive and encouraging, they want to know what they can do to help and to propel us forward. And I say it's really simple. Just subscribe. Be a reader of The Washington Post. And you can do that today at postreports.com slash subscribe. Thank you. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. This is Cleve Wootson with The Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, November 6th. Today, what the results of Tuesday's election mean for 2020, tracking apps reshaping family dynamics, and the symbolism of a McDonald's cheeseburger. one question for you. Do you all like the color blue? I said, do you like the color blue? Because I'm here to officially declare today, November the 5th, 2019, that Virginia is officially blue. Congratulations. On Tuesday, voters in a handful of states went to the polls for statewide elections. We're still waiting for the final results, but at this point, it seems that Democrats made some significant gains, especially in states that aren't typically Democratic strongholds, like Kentucky and Virginia. Democrats won control of the state legislature in Virginia. That was a big win on top of what happened in the Kentucky gubernatorial race. And you saw Democratic gains across the country, including in the vote-rich, critical Philadelphia suburbs. I'm Bob Costa, a national political reporter at The Washington Post. Bob says that these Democratic wins have Republicans anxious ahead of the 2020 election. Incumbent Kentucky Republican Governor Matt Bevin running against Democrat Andy Bashir, a 41-year-old moderate Democrat whose father used to be governor of Kentucky, faced off in a closely watched gubernatorial race. Democrats, as of Wednesday, are claiming victory, saying Bevin went down and Bashir is the governor-elect. Tonight, voters in Kentucky sent a message loud and clear for everyone to hear. It's a message that says our elections don't have to be about right versus left. They are still about right versus wrong. Governor Bevin is contesting the election for the moment. He has not yet conceded. With respect to our race, would it be would it be a Bevin race if it wasn't a squeaker? I mean, come on. I mean, really and truly, this is a close, close race. We are not conceding this race by any stretch. Not at all. And I think it's worth pointing out that in the case of Governor Bevin, President Trump actually went there, went to Kentucky this week to rally support for him. President Trump pleaded with Kentucky Republicans to support Governor Bevin so it didn't look like a disaster for the Republican Party and a disaster for this White House. You're sending that big message to the rest of the country. It's so important. You got to get your friends. You got to vote because... 
If you lose, it sends a really bad message. It just sends a bad, and they will build it up. Here's the story. If you win, they're going to make it like ho-hum. And if you lose, they're going to say, Trump suffered the greatest defeat in the history of the world. This was the greatest. You can't let that happen to me. President Trump knows that the Republican Party nationally is keeping a close eye on what happens in that state because they're trying to see and calculate for 2020 how much political capital does this president actually have? Can he carry them through the turbulent waters of 2020? And President Trump wants the party to stick with him amid impeachment and all of his ongoing political problems. And that's why Kentucky mattered for this White House. It wasn't just about securing a governor's mansion. It was about making sure this fragile Republican coalition sticks together. And that's what I find so interesting about that race is that it seems to me that the prevailing wisdom up until this point was that if you're a Republican who falls in line with President Trump, that that is the key to holding office. So what happened with Bevin in Kentucky seems like a counterargument that just because you're very pro-Trump, just because you espouse a lot of the same ideas, doesn't mean that that is automatically going to mean you're going to get reelected. It's a conundrum for many Republicans. I spent all Tuesday at the Capitol talking to Senate Republicans and their advisors and political consultants by phone. And their view is Matt Bevin and every other Republican faces an almost impossible position in 2020 because in their eyes, you can't run away from President Trump or else you risk losing his support or his voter support in a primary But if you break from him in some significant way and you become more moderate, his voters then don't come out for you in the general election. So they need his voters. They need, in part, President Trump's support in 2020. But at the same time, they want to win over these suburban voters who I was talking to Ryan Costello, for example, a former Republican congressman from the Philadelphia suburbs, who said Republicans on issues like gun safety and the environment, which are issues of suburban voters are talking about, aren't leaning in at all in the Trump era. And that leaves Republicans like him and others who have represented suburban districts or do represent suburban districts vulnerable. I also want to talk more about Virginia and the fact that you're seeing the state house flip from from red to blue. Does that mean that Virginia is now forevermore a blue state? And and what does that say about other states like Virginia? The political analysts at the University of Virginia Center for Politics run by Larry Sabato have long said Virginia leans Democrat. Now they're saying it's likely Democrat. And this is the culmination of a long trend in Virginia politics where President Obama saw that you can win in a big way in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., really ramp up the vote in that region. And as long as the vote isn't enormous in southwestern Virginia and central Virginia, you can carry the state based on what happens in northern Virginia. And that model, along with the the Democratic Party, despite its stumbles in the state, the incumbent governor, Ralph Northam, faced racial controversy for his yearbook photo. The lieutenant governor, a Democrat, faced sexual assault allegations still in office. Despite all of that, real challenges for the Democratic Party in Virginia, the message of kind of progressive politics nationally and the popularity of that message in the northern Virginia suburbs has become a potent and powerful force. And I imagine that this idea of the suburbs being this powerful force is applicable to what we saw in Pennsylvania, too, where Philadelphia suburbs were the one that were a pretty critical change. 
I was paying very close attention to the Philadelphia suburbs in part because I grew up in the Philadelphia mm-hmm. suburbs. And you look at Chester County, Delaware County, Bucks County, my home county, you see Democrats doing well in county offices. Now, this maybe doesn't seem important. Why do county offices matter? Well, they matter because if you're going to win Pennsylvania in 2020, you need to win places like Delaware County. And Delaware County is a place where you saw on Tuesday night, the entire county council went Democratic, stayed Democratic in a historic way. In Bucks County, the county commissioner's race by a narrow margin and went Democratic. Democrats, to win back the presidency, have to do better in the Philadelphia suburbs than they did in 2016. President Trump rallied the vote in western Pennsylvania and central Pennsylvania in such a significant way in 2016 that it didn't matter that Secretary Clinton did so well in the city of Philadelphia in the suburbs. So the suburban vote is so critical for the Democrats in 2020. Democrats had done well in Pennsylvania going back to 1992. President Trump winning it was out of the blue and shocked a lot of people. And now you see it trending back more toward the center, more toward blue. So how panicked are Republicans right now from seeing last night's results? Well, it depends on whether the conversation I'm having with them is on the record or off the record or on background. On the record, there's this usual refrain of, oh, Matt Bevin was a bad candidate. What's happening in the suburbs is not that important. That these are particular cases and we shouldn't be gleaning larger themes from them. But a few people went on record with me for the Washington Post late, late Tuesday night, uh, like Scott Reed, the chief political strategist at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which is a very influential Republican group. And he said the messages are not getting out there for the Republican Party. What he meant is the business community, the donor class, wants to hear more talk about the tax cut, about the lack of regulation that President Trump has installed in the government, uh, peeling back all the regulatory policies of the Obama administration, the judicial confirmations on the conservative side. All that Reid said is being overwhelmed by President Trump's personality, his tweets, his conduct, the impeachment process on Capitol Hill. All of that is making it harder for Republicans to make a case to their own voters. And is there a sense that this is the first sign that the impeachment inquiry will end up being very bad for Republicans in 2020? Or would that be an oversimplified way of looking at what happened yesterday? What we see with the impeachment inquiry is President Trump may not be losing his core voters But he's not winning over swing voters and independent voters with the impeachment process ongoing. And he's finding it hard to target new legislative items that could help him in 2020. He expressed interest, for example, in gun control in the wake of the latest mass shootings. But he's not moving toward that now because it's all impeachment all the time. Fight, fight, fight. Because of that, he's not making overtures to the voters he needs to win over to make sure he wins the White House again. So Democrats say impeachment may not be hobbling the president in a, in a way that's going to guarantee victory for the Democrats in 2020. But they're, in effect, blocking President Trump from making uh, moves to consolidate his own support. Robert Costa is a national political reporter for The Washington Post. There's this board on Reddit that I had been kind of lurking on for a while called Insane Parents. 
And Insane Parents is a place where if you have insane parents, you go and post examples of them being insane. And I noticed that on this board, a lot of people were posting screenshots of conversations they were having with their parents about tracking apps, including Lay360. And not all of them were from teenagers mad that their parents were scolding them for going five miles above the speed limit. It was people who were in college who were being told to conform to specific behavioral restrictions that were being enforced through this app. And that got me kind of intrigued about what was happening as people who had grown up with this app and grown up with this as a part of their relationship with their parents. How does an app like this play out as people are entering college and trying to kind of find their first steps of independence. I'm Abby Olheiser, and I'm a digital culture reporter at The Post. And what is Life360? So Life360 is a tracking app. All that means is it's an app you can put on your phone and share your location with people who have opted in to see it and vice versa. So A family, for instance, could form a group on this app, and they would be able to open it up and see where anyone in this group is at any time, assuming they had their phone on and kind of activated to do this. It's become pretty popular with the parents of teenagers, particularly teenagers who are starting to get their first steps into independence. I also heard, for instance, from adults who use it to track their parents, um, particularly ones who may be are getting a little old to be driving, or they have concerns about where they are. So it's not exclusively something you can use to track teens, but it has increasingly become a part of teen life. So you've talked to people who have either been using this app to track their loved ones or being the one who is being tracked by their family members. What are, what are some of the stories that you heard from them? There's a wide range of stories, right? One end of the spectrum. This is Sarah's current location, which is here, of course. is this incredibly troubling sort of black mirror-ish way of using the app. Now, if she ever goes missing, all you have to do is tap here, enter your PIN, and law enforcement is automatically notified. These are her vitals. Healthy heartbeat. Oh, I see her iron levels are a little low. How is she eating? Man, she's picky. Um, She hates greens, so... You might want to think about nutritional supplements. I spoke to somebody who would get text messages every time they left their dorm. I interviewed a woman named Ivy, whose mother emailed her about a hike she took when she didn't have the app on, and then said something, and I'm paraphrasing here, I suppose you're wanting to start to pay for your own food and tuition. The implication being, if you don't comply... I will cut you off financially. There was another story about a teenager who came out as gay to his parents, and his parents uh, forced him to put Life360 on the phone, presumably to track his movements now with increased interest. Then on the other end, I talked to parents and college-age children who didn't really think about it that much. It was just sort of on there. They felt it was for their safety. Their parents weren't texting them, commenting on their behavior using the app. Well, I'm, I'm curious what parents say about why they do this. Like, I understand safety concerns or that if something happens to your kid, you want to know where they are. But at some point, especially if your kid's going off to college and they're an adult, it feels like this is too much. It feels like this isn't giving them the freedom that 
that you need to have to be able to navigate the world as a functioning adult? When I talked to parents, there were a couple things that kept coming up. One was the phrase peace of mind. You know, a lot of parents would install this app when their kids became new drivers or the first time they started having their own schedules so that their parents knew where they were. My name is Anna Baird, and I have three teenagers. My oldest daughter is now 19 um, and a sophomore in college. When she first got her driver's license and turned 16 and started, you know, driving regularly, driving herself to school. I had friends who recommended this app, found it very helpful, not so much really to go sort of into the app, but to enable just push notifications so that when she got to school, my phone would tell me, Cameron arrived at school. And then I wouldn't, you know, wouldn't worry about that. Some of them claim to me that it actually helped them back off from interfering in their kids' lives, saying that, like, for instance, instead of texting them constantly asking where they are, they always know where they are. So they don't need to do that. Otherwise, it would probably be a lot of me reminding my children to text me when you get there or text me when you're about to leave. And, and nobody really likes that. That, that. that just feels more invasive and then gives room for people to forget. And you're worrying about things you didn't really need to be worrying about. And there are some teenagers who will say that that's the case. I'm Cameron. Um, I'm a sophomore at UNC Chapel Hill. Um, my parents, my mom's not texting me being like, I know you have a test tomorrow, but I see that you're not at the library. So I could see that how people might want to turn that off if that's the response that their parents are giving to them based on having their location. But for me, it has been more of a peace of mind thing of like knowing that in the case of emergency, they would know where I am. It's tricky, right, because we're just talking about parenting now, right? The amount of surveillance that is possible has increased dramatically in the past several years. And now we're at this point where people are confronting what to do with this amount of information at the moment where they're supposed to be giving these young adults more independence. Hmm. So that more and more it's a situation where because there is so much technology and so much ability to surveil every aspect of a kid's life that you have more parents having to say, what level am I actually comfortable with? If everything is on the table, what do I choose and what should I maybe not choose? And how does that change, right? So how does that change over time? When I would speak to experts, one thing that kept coming up is that there's different levels of appropriate privacy for young adults as they grow and become adults, right? And so what might be appropriate for a 15-year-old is not necessarily appropriate for a 21-year-old. And I think that was something that I was seeing um, as I was reporting out this story is kind of a disconnect in some of the more troubling cases. You know, if you're in a position where you have a relationship with your older teenage or young adult children that is, you know, based on trust and you've got proper boundaries, the addition of this app isn't going to be that impactful um, if you don't have that underneath to start with, then I can definitely see why this app could feel too controlling or manipulative or something that the teenagers or college-age students would not feel so good about. Is there any sense of what the long-term implications for this could be, the kind of psychological effects that it has on kids or on parents who really rely on this technology and that this, this all-consuming surveillance becomes a day-to-day part of their lives? 
it can severely impact interpersonal development. You know, I mean, it's an easy scenario to imagine, right? So if we are both college students and I have Life360 on my phone and my mom texts me every hour to comment on what I'm doing and you don't have it on your phone and we want to go somewhere, you might not necessarily want me coming along if I'm going to be constantly dealing with this kind of tether of accountability to my parents, right? When parents use it to sort of manipulate and control a college student's experience, it can lead to loneliness and social isolation. You know, I spoke to another student who said that the app being on her phone made her feel like none of her decisions were really her own because she couldn't really go anywhere without her mother knowing about it and commenting on it and criticizing or weighing in on these decisions she was making. And that as she was kind of on the cusp of entering adulthood, she didn't really feel like she had learned how to be an adult. It comes from a good place, a place where we don't want our kids to screw up. We don't want our kids to get hurt. I talked to Stacy Steinberg, a law professor at the University of Florida, who has done a lot of research into privacy and parenting and uh, the upbringing of kids. Technology gives us new ways to feel like we're protecting our kids, both from other people and from ourselves. But kids need autonomy from their parents. They need to be able to develop their own sense of self especially when they reach adulthood. When you ask about, say, long-term effects, right, we don't know. It has, there hasn't really been enough time to see. But when you listen to what students are saying and you listen to the concerns of parents, it kind of comes down to are they getting that space that they need to learn how to fail, to learn how to make decisions for themselves. I feel like things were much easier before this technology existed. When, when I think back to, like, when I was a kid, and I didn't have a cell phone at least for the first part of my childhood, and sometimes you just run over to your neighbor's house or go for a bike ride around the neighborhood, and your parents wouldn't necessarily have a way to get in contact with you while that was happening, and that was just accepted. That was totally normal, that there were just times when your kid was off doing something, and then they'd come back eventually. And I'm wondering if the fact that there is now an expectation of constant communication between parents and kids, whether that actually makes things a lot harder or makes things a lot more fraught for parents. This is the first generation of kids to grow up under what I like to call the watchful eyes of their parents' phones and technology. Our natural inclination is going to be to want to try to help and monitor. The problem is, is that helping and monitoring are two really different things, but technology makes us feel like they're one and the same. So on the one hand, parents will say that this app helps them with their anxiety about where their kids are. On the other hand, it provides them with kind of almost perfect surveillance of where their kids are and a sense of uncertainty when they're not checking or when that location tracking isn't on. So you can see how it would become difficult for somebody to turn it off as their kid heads to college. On the other hand, one thing that parents brought up is that the world is a little different. One parent who responded to a question I posted in a Facebook group for parents of college-age kids was the parent of somebody who went to a college where there was a shooting. And for them, they felt that having the app was absolutely worth knowing where their kid was at that moment. It's an interesting question, and I haven't seen a 
completely convincing answer either way. And I suspect it's because it's a little of both, right? You know, to what degree the technology is helping or hurting isn't a question for me to answer. And none of the experts I asked had a firm answer to that either. It's just more complicated. Abby Olheiser writes about digital culture for The Post. And now, one more thing about a McDonald's cheeseburger on display in Iceland. This burger is 10 years old, but weirdly, it doesn't show any signs of decomposing. No spots, no mold, no fuzz, nothing. It's really absurd. <laughs> you, you have this live stream of essentially just a burger and fries not moving. Uh, there, there's nothing happening in it. But it has triggered enormous amount of interest worldwide. Rick Nowak is a foreign affairs reporter for The Post. And he says that this burger has become a source of fascination. Not just because it hasn't gotten moldy, but because it's a symbol of something bigger. I think to viewers abroad and people who have watched a live stream of this, this is very much a story about perhaps the dangers of fast food and excessive consumption of fast food. But to Icelanders, this is a story that essentially serves as a cautionary tale, as a warning that capitalism, unregulated, can derail. Iceland has never defaulted on its sovereign debt. And will not. Words of reassurance from the Icelandic Prime Minister as the country struggles to cope in the wake of the global economic crisis. In October 2009, the situation was such that uh, even McDonald's was going down. So uh, I came up with the idea on the last day that they were open to go and buy a cheeseburger and fries. So I interviewed Hjörtur Smarsen. Um, he's a 43-year-old who at the time was working as a marketing consultant. And he essentially wanted to check if there is any truth to the myth that McDonald's burgers do not decompose. He took the burger and the fries back to his home and put it on his garage shelf. And then he forgot about it. And it wasn't until three years later when I'm moving out of Iceland and I'm cleaning out my garage and... Uh... You know, like when you clean out garages, I found my rollerblades and some mice had chewed on the stuffings in it. And suddenly he came across this burger and he was kind of afraid what he would find. <laughs> and I opened the box and I see the burger and it looks like I bought it 15 minutes ago. Which was quite shocking in a way. And he suddenly realized that this might be some sort of historical artifact, that there might be, you know, a bigger meaning to it because it was probably the last surviving McDonald's burger in Iceland. So he, he called up the National Museum in Iceland and, and offered them to, uh, to put it on, uh, on display in the museum. And that's what happened. The burger has become a symbol in many ways, in the sense that it's like a manifestation of how Icelanders rose up against capitalism after the economic collapse of 2008. So instead of bailing out the banks, uh, we let them roll. And uh, even McDonald's, which is like the symbol of capitalism in, in many people's eyes, didn't survive in Iceland. And I think to understand why that burger became a symbol for that crisis, we have to go back to 1993, so a little further, when McDonald's first arrived in Iceland. 
Uh, at the time, Iceland was essentially kind of embracing free market capitalism. And the arrival of McDonald's became sort of a symbol for that. It was celebrated as essentially Iceland, a country of only 300,000 people, approximately, becoming part of a community of nations, essentially. So when in 2009, McDonald's shut down in Iceland, it sort of became the symbol for failure, for uh, how free market capitalism can, can suddenly collapse. And that is why there is such a strong connection still to that burger, even today, and especially today, in, in fact, because there have been some concerns about the Icelandic economy over the last few months or so, once again. Rick Nowak is a foreign affairs reporter for The Post. The 10-year-old McDonald's cheeseburger is now at a hotel in southern Iceland. And you can watch the live stream. Find a link at postreports.com. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. And just a reminder, we are not the only Post podcast covering the impeachment inquiry. You can hear coverage from Post Reports, Can He Do That?, and The Daily 202's Big Idea in our new Impeachment Inquiry audio feed. Subscribe at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.